Could it be Mary sitting in a synagogue in Nazareth in 1 BC was listening to the Torah reading? And could it be the day's Torah reading was from Isaiah 7:14? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Podcast Christmas special. Prophecy of the Virgin Birth. Thanks for joining in on this podcast episode We're going to take a Christmas break from our Joshua timeline with this episode and discuss one of the prophecies of Jesus' birth and possibly the most dramatic of all of them. All through the Bible, there are prophecies of the upcoming Messiah and future kingdom of God who would fulfill the promises and reconnect sinful man with God. My original thought was to collect many of these prophecies, especially related to the birth of Jesus, and fold them into a storyline for Christmas. But there are just too many of them, and to unwrap them takes lots of time. So since I just couldn't do this with a reasonable amount of time, we're going to just discuss one of these prophecies and its context within its timeline and its history. In this episode, we'll be speaking of the prophecy previously spoken of related to the virgin conception and birth of Jesus from Isaiah 7, which occurred in 734 B.C. Before we go there, note here, we are taking the listeners to a different time in history. We are leaving the Bronze Age and the time of the old biblical leaders from the Bronze Age and advancing to the Iron Age, a time of empires and in Israel's case a time of kings and prophets. We're skipping over the formation of the kingdom of Israel around 1000 BC and its division after the time of Solomon. This was a time when kings autocratic rulers made decisions for their entire country, and when the fate of the nation sometimes simply rested in whether the king was good or bad. But also in the middle of this age was the prophets, an interesting group of people who spoke God's words, always seemed to look to the future and failed to see the present. Always out of step, always unfashionable, always in a different place, always not relevant to their people and kings. But here's the key. They knew God's heart, and they knew the future. Think about this. Your kingdom just fought a huge war, and the final battle has brought peace and stability and victory. And in walks the prophet. In his crazy stare and his wild clothes, he begins to talk of the great battles and death that await the people in the future. What? Are you crazy? This prophet makes no sense. Or what about this? Your country is experiencing some of the greatest financial blessings you could have ever imagined. And he is now, the prophet is now, prophesying famine, severe famine, where people resort to cannibalism. It's nuts. No, it's the prophets. Forever looking to the future, always a step ahead of everyone else, and totally irrelevant to those around them. 
This is the prophets. Now, if the king works with and understands his prophets, there is eternal glory, like in the days of David and Solomon and many others. But if the kings ignore the prophetic warnings and words of God, there will be disaster. So this is where I take the listeners to 734 BC, the location, the city of Jerusalem. The kingdom of Israel has since been split into two kingdoms for over 200 years. Remember this or it will throw you off while I tell the story. Judah is the southern kingdom and Israel is now considered the northern kingdom. Judah is in the south and has its capital at Jerusalem with the temple to God and the Ark of the Covenant in priesthood. And the idol-worshipping northern part of Israel is considered the kingdom of Israel with Samaria as its capital. Typically, the two countries, though separate, were friends through heritage, but sometimes they were against each other. In this age, the very idolatrous Israel, or northern kingdom, was siding with the Arameans who came from modern-day Damascus, Syria, against the God-fearing, at least at times, Judah. To set the tone of 734 BC, Israel has sided with the Arameans and decided to attack Judah. Two massive armies converge on Jerusalem, and the people of Judah withdraw into the city of Jerusalem and prepare for a siege. The people of Judah were terrified to find two kingdoms against them. Now the king of Judah was Ahaz, and he rallied his troops to defend himself. This is where I'd like to say Ahaz, the godly king, stood his ground like David did time and time again. But instead, Ahaz was what most agreed to be the second worst king in Judah's history. Here's a recap of who Ahaz is and what the Bible says about him. 2 Kings 16.2 Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before Israel. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. All right, so this guy is bad news. I mean, really bad news. He sacrificed his own son to Molech and conducted sacrifices to his gods under every spreading tree. In summary, Ahaz was a wicked, demonized king. So we have two wicked nations attacking the place of God's glory, where the temple and the ark reside, which was led by a wicked, demonized king, Ahaz. Sounds horrible, but enter the prophet. Now across Jerusalem... There was a prophet whose name was Isaiah. Yes, this is the same Isaiah from the book of Isaiah. God commanded Isaiah to approach the king. In one of the many kings and priests interchanges in the Old Testament, Isaiah walks to see the king at the walls of the city. And it doesn't say for sure, but I'd like to picture this scene after the siege has begun. Let me paint the picture. Try to imagine this scene. The stress must have been intense. I mean, two armies and two kingdoms were attacking Jerusalem at this moment. And you know that as a prophet walks in, you know the prophet is going to wow you because that's what prophets do. 
but this time it is in the middle of a battle situation. The battle is underway. Their siege equipment was possibly hurling huge stones into the city and crashing walls. Archers were upon the walls, and it was a war zone. The steep walls of Jerusalem upon the ridge made it a great defensive position, but the battle had to be tenuous, and in walks the prophet. Isaiah speaks, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Now the stubs of firewood are the king of Israel and Aram. And the prophet continues in Isaiah 7, 7. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only reason its king. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. This is the beginning of the word, and it appears to be made during the battle. For a little clarity, Ephraim is another word for northern Israel, and its king at the time was the son of Remaliah, and the king of Aram was Rezin. So God was prophesying the defeat of these two nations and their destruction. The word is quite staggering. God is stating that the country of Israel will no longer exist, and in 65 years Assyria will rise and destroy them. Also, Damascus, or the Arameans, will be conquered as well. This is no small matter. God was going to allow northern Israel, which was promised to Abraham, conquered by Joshua and secured by King David, to be leveled, and its people to be killed or deported. What an awful, awful thing that was prophesied. There must have been that typical prophetic silence after these words. So terrible would the Assyrian invasion be that it would later be declared falsely that the ten tribes from the northern kingdom were completely missing and lost to history because the loss was so great. But in the middle of this terrible prophecy, God would be offering redemption. It is so true. Every time God tears down, he builds back up later. But there is always redemption, despite their sin and unfaithfulness. God was going to pave a way for redemption. Now there appears to be a gap in time here for a reason. For the weight needed to be felt. The destruction of their brothers. How terrible, even if they were fighting today and waging war against each other, how terrible would it be for people to lose their own kin, their own heritage, their brothers? Almost setting up the next scene, ignoring the sounds of warfare in the city, Isaiah asked the king a question. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. God wanted to show his faithfulness to Judah at this moment. Your enemies will be defeated, and you alone will hang on. Come on, Ahaz, ask me for a sign, God is saying. Come on, Ahaz. Everyone knows you don't follow God, only false gods. Everyone knows you sacrificed your own son in the fire. But at this moment, God was reaching out to Ahaz. But Ahaz's awful, awful answer was this. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Wrong answer, Ahaz. He didn't believe in God. In fact, this demonized king most likely could barely handle the presence of Isaiah. 
Why would he feed this prophet's madness, he probably thought. But God wanted to grant Ahaz mercy and told him to request a sign, but he didn't. Instead, he answered with an ignorant, foolish attitude of disrespect. Now God chose this moment to release one of the many prophecies that would set the stage for the redemption of all mankind. And what seems to be the worst timing and worst delivery of all time, in the middle of a siege, God chose perfectly. Millions of Israelites from northern Israel will be disappearing into the unknown realm of Assyria. They will be deported, killed, or enslaved. Generally speaking, ten tribes will be disappearing from history for centuries. And following this awful judgment for their idolatry, God presents protection for Judah and offers a sign. The king rejects it, but God, who is speaking from the mouth of the prophet, doesn't live in the now either. He lives in the future, and after judgment, redemption is in the works. Here is a seemingly ridiculous, out-of-step prophecy that speaks of the redemption of all mankind. Here is God's answer. Isaiah 7, 13. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey, when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. When it seems the Israelites were being completely abandoned to their fate, God was beginning to reveal his ultimate plan of salvation. And to this wicked king who sacrifices his own son to demons, God was speaking of the ultimate pure and perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that would redeem mankind and conquer sin. The answer to their sin and their idolatry was Jesus. God's ultimate plan for all mankind and Israel would be the salvation and restoration with God through the virgin birth and belief in Jesus and his redemption obtained on the cross at Calvary. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, his one and only son, to die so that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. At just the right time, God would send his son, his one and only son, to be born of a virgin, to be raised, and to bring the kingdom of heaven, and to die on a cross at Calvary to redeem all mankind. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast Christmas special. Next week, we'll return back to our Joshua timeline, which we should wrap up in a few episodes with the return of Caleb, a recap of the invasion, concluding with the diplomacy of Phineas. On behalf of everyone here at Message to Kings, I'd like to wish everyone a blessed Christmas full of grace, peace, and God's love all through this season. May we all be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit and may you feel the peace of God in your hearts and in your homes.